Lights, camera, action. Hi everyone, it's Lauren Hawker-Zaffer. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. I've got a question for you today. Have you ever thought about the multifaceted impacts of technology? About how differing areas of society are impacted? About how technology impacts important cooperative behaviours like governance, political polarisation, economic inequality and social mobility? These are prominent and important topics, especially in the ever-evolving landscape of work, the self, and their intersection with impactful technologies. And to support soft analysis of these topics today, I have invited Professor Joanna J. Bryson to join us. Why? Because Professor Joanna J. Bryson is an academic who is recognised for broad expertise on intelligence, its nature and its consequences. Holding two degrees, each in psychology and AI, a BA, Chicago, Master of Science and Master of Philosophy from Edinburgh, and a PhD from MIT. Now, since 2020, Joanna is the Professor of Ethics and Technology in the Centre for Digital Governance at Hertie School in Berlin. She advises governments, corporations and other agencies globally, particularly on AI policy. So welcome, Joanna. It's exciting to have you here as our guest today on Redefining AI. Well, it's exciting to be here. I love the topics you want to cover. They're certainly very prominent and important topics. And I think that our audience are really going to enjoy the conversation and being able to direct their own understanding and learnings through this avenue that we're creating for them. So I think that maybe, Joanna, just to start us off and, and to get into the topic from an interesting perspective or maybe a subjective desire, I don't know what it is, but what fascinates me is your initial choice of study, so psychology and AI. I'm actually reading a book at the moment called A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins, so that may have fueled my own curiosity. But I think that my question in relation to this would be, how do you see the integration or interplay of psychology and AI shaping the future of technology and human experience? Oh, wow. That's a really interesting question. So, so first of all, when I came into psychology, I was non-clinical side and I was actually like stuff like neuroscience of behavior. Actually, I've published many more papers in things like theoretical biology and evolutionary anthropology than I have in what's currently called psychology. So when you phrase the question that way, I think of all the ways that people are trying to use technology to alter each other's behavior, to allow people to alter their own behavior, like psyops, you know, what, how it's being used in the war right now. And that's not the end of psychology I initially meant to get into, although, of course, I was interested in that. But I'm quite interested in intelligence also in, in other animals, other species, and why different species use it in different ways and why different people use it in different ways. And so I, I had really kind of come up at it from a different angle. One of the things I'm most worried about is in order to help people defend against the kinds of attacks, you know, on our democracy, the leading into abuse of, you know, just, just uh, for example, gambling or whatever, just in order to help people understand how AI is actually built and so they don't accidentally come to believe that AI is something itself needs to be defended as a person, we need to understand ourselves better. So I think there's going to be a huge challenge for people to get over the hurdle of understanding just how mechanistic our own intelligence is, and that that's okay, that that doesn't make us any less than we were before we understood that. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think that there's a common then narrative that AI is defended as an individual, as a self? Yeah, the weird thing about that is it's defended sort of as an individual and sort of as a collective. So no one is really talking about individual people, machines, except you know, there was a whole weird thing where, where one of the robots that somebody built, I mean, it wasn't even one robot, it was multiple robots, but Sophia, <laughs> the, the, that one sort of had identity. But when people are talking about, I mean, I've heard, uh, you know, people who should know better say things like, oh, you know, GPT-4 has read more than any person. Well, yeah, more than any individual person, but, you know, it's it's more like a city than it is like a person. Mm-hmm. Then they say, oh, and there's like billions of it. And it's like, no, every training a model for GPT-4 is something that takes months, right? There are not billions of months that have been put into this. So they must mean that they're simultaneously thinking of the model that reflects, like I said, like it's almost like a whole country sitting down and reading all these books. And then the individual instances of people logging in and making an account and asking a question, somehow both of those are being seen as a single entity. And that's just, you know, that's just wrong. It's incoherent. And and I'm and so if you're having trouble understanding this, whoever you are, believe me, full professors of AI are making mistakes like that in public. So like when you go back to the maybe the psychological perspective and giving AI itself an identification, I mean, there's also been the association, you hear it quite a lot in conversation, depending on who you're talking about. There's also a gender association with what it's identified as. I mean, is this an intrinsic, maybe, I don't know, desire or habit that's ingrained or connotation that we try to genderize it and also create an identity. I mean, I think there's a specific word for it. Anthropomorphism. Yes. Can you explain that to us? Does that come into play when we're looking at it from that angle? Yeah. So normally in psychology, you're more worried about the dehumanization of other humans. You know, so why is it that we're able to, you know, commit acts of warfare and atrocities? Or even just why are we implicitly not meaning to not even giving some people a full consideration, you know, even in our classroom for teachers or something, you know, like how do our our implicit biases just lead us to focus on people more like ourselves? Well, part of that is just that the more someone is like you, the more the cheap and easy way of doing ethics, which is empathy, works. Mm. So you're just putting yourself in their shoes. And so if if their experience is the same as your experience, you're going to be better at that. But part of both uh, dehumanization and anthropomorphism is about how big and how homogenous do you want your in-group? And so I think part of the reason people really, really want to believe that AI is a particular gender or a particular race, and whether they that they think that consciously or if they just always portray it as like a white male when they make these weird, you know, these, you know those robot pictures they always are and like yeah. the fingers touching and whatnot, yeah. you know. They feel like that makes them safer if they have this really powerful ally. And, and they shouldn't because it's not their ally. It's the, it's an asset of a corporation and possibly of some of military intelligences as well, you know, and they project. So you also have people that really feel like if you won't allow the machine to create an identity, then you're not happy with the extent to which I'm creating my own identity and you're inhibiting my freedom as well as the machine's freedom. And it's like, yeah, but I would never do that, right? Your freedom is something that you were born with. It's intrinsic to how we socialize with each other. And the machines are designed. They were never born. There wasn't like a, a plan laid out by biology that they maybe, you know, their parents augmented slightly during their system of education. And eventually they became responsible for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's what it is to be a human adult, right? 
but with AI, someone else designed it. And sometimes the designers put random stuff in it. They literally put like something that rolls a dice, a random number generator in. And then they go, oh, it's autonomous. No, you as a as an adult created an artifact. You're responsible for it, whether or not you created it in a dangerous way, like by putting random stuff in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this is the mind boggling. This just, I was just describing something that was about, I don't know, 10 years ago that, that some Dutch professor did. But Sam Altman did that yesterday in front of the U.S. Senate as well. Oh, you know, you need to have some kind of regulations to check whether the models are are like are programming themselves into this. You know, they're like what? No. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I'd noted down to ask you about as well. So if you could maybe comment on the appearance of Sam Altman yesterday. So he appeared before Congress and he made pleas for lawmakers to regulate AI. Can you share some thoughts around this and maybe yeah. your stance towards it? Well, you need to contextualize the the thing a lot larger. So the the fact is that the U.S. was pushing back and pushing back and pushing back, especially not the whole U.S. actually, but like the big tech and sort of uh, some Midwestern professors. You would just wind up in these conversations with people who seriously don't even expect government can work. They think, oh, we don't write legislation anymore. Fine for you in Europe to write legislation, but we don't do that anymore. That's false. The American Congress writes enormous legislative things now, and they they, they have to be enormous because any one law could be knocked out. But in a way, it's being more transparent because legislation is always like that. There's always like quid pro quo and whatever. So now the U.S., they, they write enormous laws, including they wrote a law that was that was passed by both sides of Congress to make illegal the thing that, that uh, Trump tried to do on that January 6th, right? So that's no longer an option. Americans don't even know that America is writing a law. Anyway, I digress a little bit too much. The point is that I was spending years in these kinds of video meetings with people saying there cannot be government, there shouldn't be government, there, that it, it's going to collapse anyway, it's going to stop innovation, whatever. Mm. And now all of a sudden, right the same week that the European Parliament signs off on their final version, that's I mean, that's correct. when it's mm-hmm. over. There's, gonna, there's three parts of the mm-hmm. process. There's the Parliament, the Council, and the Commission that, that all uh, have to make their three parts line up. But the same week that the parliament is finishing their version, that somebody goes and says, oh, no, the Americans should be the ones regulating, not the Europeans. And by the way, I'm going to tell them a bunch of disinformation about how it's the AI itself that needs regulating, not the companies producing it, right? That, to me, is regulatory interference dressed up in like the sheep's clothing of like, oh, yes, please regulate us. So where do you see the support that would be needed to generate the attention around the organizations and not the AI itself. So that's actually one of the things we've been calling for from the beginning. It's called transparency. If you can actually see who it is that is the actor, then you can regulate the system more successfully, right? Mm-hmm. And so it should be the actually the very first national level soft law was produced in the UK. It was five steps, very much like the OECD principles, a little simpler, which is to say the OECD improved on it. But the fourth one was that the machine nature should be transparent. So people should be able to see that there are developers and to understand their roles. And otherwise, you can't do all we want. People don't realize this. All we want is to go back to regulating all products the same. And to recognize that software is a product, whether or not you want to call it intelligent. And I would, I'm perfectly happy to call quite a lot of software intelligent. And I could talk about that with you later if you want. But the point is that all software is a product. 
And therefore, it can be regulated with things like due diligence, right? You have to go in and say, did the people, can they prove that they followed good practice? Can they prove that they tested the product adequately before they released it? Can they prove that they're monitoring the product? If they really Mm -hmm. think that it is something that can change as it develops, they ought to be the ones that provide transparency to themselves, as well as to any regulator, as well as to a concerned public about, is there any chance of this creating these other kinds of harms? Mm -hmm. This is absolutely the obligation of the people releasing the products. It is not a concern about the product itself. It's a concern about, it's just like if you build a car, right? You need to know that the car was produced in a way that it's likely to perform as you were promised. And then if you have an accident, you have a pretty good chance of proving that that it was your own fault, right? But if it was somebody else's fault, if you say, there's no way I could prevent this, then you need to be able to go to court and demonstrate, or the other parties have to say, no, we can show we did all the correct things. Mm -hmm. And so in any other industry, that would be true. And the software industry hasn't been held to that standard. One thing that has curbed up a little bit of curiosity from my side was the statement that you made about going back to regulate products or software development in a same way. What do you mean by that? Has there been a digression? What's caused that digression? That's actually really super interesting. And I've been working on this for about, uh, well, since I got to Heritage School at least, and I don't entirely understand, but it seems that under some legal systems, but not others, Mm -hmm. um, if you create something new, then you have to build up law around it before it's regulated. So it would make more sense, and I believe this is true in Finland, if like if you had something like software that was new and you say, okay, until we write new law about it, then we're going to consider it like, I don't know, lumber or something, right? You know, whatever the nearest thing was, writing, you know, something like that, journalism. I think there was a bit of that where people were copywriting their software programs for a while or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I don't understand. I do know a little bit. Some people claim that software is not an ordinary product. Because unlike other products, it gets altered by external factors. So software is created out of libraries, mm-hmm. and the libraries can be updated by other people. And then the same program behaves differently, right? Well, that's the theory. But in practice, that's the same thing. Again, if you were building a car, and the people that provided you steel started providing you somewhat different steel, then you'd better check that it can still withhold under crashes or whatever, right? You would expect the the car manufacturer to check that kind of thing. And the fact that these things happen faster, just, well, we have software, you know? It, it isn't that hard to automate testing. In fact, Facebook put out a blog about this, like in, I don't know, 2015, 2017 or something, showing that they allow every programmer to write new code if they see a problem just to fix it. And then they have an entire test suite that just cranks into motion and they have an entire test path. So initially, you know, first you run a million automated tests, then it goes out and only the Facebook, the people using Facebook at Facebook see it. And then like 2% of all Facebook users see it. And eventually everyone sees it, right? But it's all automated. There's no special thing that has to happen. We could be doing that with all software. You don't have to be Facebook to do that. And if you say, well, I don't have as much money as Facebook. Yeah, so because the question would be, why why are people not doing that then? Well, I don't understand why they don't do that, right? So Facebook had just, I understand why Facebook's doing it, because they want their product to be 100% reliable. They want it Mm -hmm. to be there what people want it, right? And also in the 1980s, when I was a, a software programmer, 
then this stuff was big news. I was in like a cutting edge company because we were using this thing called revision control, where you actually, when you change the software, you have to say why, and then people can go back and see who changed it when, you know, it is not cutting edge anymore. That was like a big deal in the 1980s. It is not a big deal in the 21st century. And yet most AI companies are not using those basic like CS 101 level. Okay. It's not programming 101. It's, it's called systems engineering, but it's still something you teach in the first or second year of an undergraduate computer science degree. I've talked to a consultancies about like they're like, oh, you guys say that they that everybody sits down and does an architecture and keeps these log files and you go in these companies and it's not there. And I'm like, yeah, that's culpable. <laughs> right? Anyone can throw away their records, but if you were in any other industry, then you would be hung out to dry if you have any liability issues because you couldn't defend yourself. Do you think it's got anything to do with the inherent maybe tech cultures? of strive for innovation, strive for visionary products. Do you think that affects the behavioral attitudes or working processes to any extent? I, I don't think it's that because, um, again, if you want to have a product that you can maintain and extend, then you want to have this kind of information. We didn't do revision control because we didn't have any customers. I was working, I was writing the software for like, a, you know, a financial company, you know, sorry, <laughs> I paid off my undergraduate debts, you know. But anyway, the point was that we didn't have clients. We did it just so we could maintain our own software, you know. So I don't think that's the reason. I I think it's more that a lot of people coming into this that have the right mathematics for for machine learning come out of physics or something like that. And they didn't get first year undergraduate computer science. And then also, I, I there is one other guess that we that I forgot to mention when you first brought this all up. There's two different ways to think about really large industry. And one of them is that uh, it's a problem. It's an alternative source of power. It, it actually tends to slow innovation because they want the people who have are winning want to keep winning and they don't want to have competitors. And so and so this is called you know antitrust or competition law and monopoly. But the other side is something called national champions. So it's the idea that your country needs to look at what it does well, and it needs to really promote and alter its entire economy to support those people. So that's why, for example, New Jersey, this little tiny state in the United States, Mm. uh, is one of the main contributors into uh, tax revenue. And then like all these other giant states, but with hardly any people in them, are getting the money out from New Jersey, basically, right? And why? Because the entire fiscal system of the U.S. is set up to help uh, states like New Jersey and Delaware uh, and their financial products make money, right? And so if you do that, then you have to, and the same, you could say the same about UK, you know, that everything is set up so London makes money and then everybody else is subsidiary to that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you have a national champion and you're, if you're coordinating everything around that, right now, the only, as far as I know, the only sector that, well, finance actually is another one, but one of the main sectors that the US really still dominates in um, somewhat like they used to dominate everything uh, after World War II is the AI sector. Let me rephrase that. After World War II, the US had the largest GDP of, like it was larger than the rest of the world combined. Mm. Right now, if you look at the number, amount of market capitalization or the number of patents in AI, the the US has more than the rest of the world combined. Okay. And it was interesting because I found that out because I was looking at this, uh, people were saying, oh, you know, if the EU doesn't support the US, then China is going to win. China is nowhere near the US. However, the EU is near China. And, and there's, 
And actually, the whole rest of the world is actually doing kind of similarly. It's only the U.S. that has this giant lead. And so it might be that America wasn't regulating this sector because they're worried about the fact that they're falling behind in other sectors. And so they decided to let one kind of off the leash to be a national champion. Mm. But now we've got this problem. Let's stick to that topic then. So in your own opinion, how do you think that technologies influence the dynamics of governance and decision-making processes? You know, in, in what ways does it shape the relationship between citizens and their governments and what potential benefits or challenges do you think arise from, from this transformation? You know, that is such like a huge, like we could talk about that. We could probably go Maybe on. Maybe it's a extremely it. big question. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is that um, li- literally, you know, AI is a subset of software, it's a subset of something like a in- information communication technology, right? So everything you do, every relationship between humans and including you know, our, our relationship with our governments, obviously, if you're, if you're, Increasing the number of ways you can communicate, the rate mm-hmm. at which you communicate, and also your intelligence, you're, you're able to synthesize all that information. Of course, you're changing like that relationship. And yet when people go and they do studies about it, it actually, so a lot of us are very worried about the misinformation and the weird false things other people believe. Uh, <laughs> you know, and people both believe that about each other, right? But anyway, and I'm not, I'm not being relativistic about it, but I'm just saying that everybody is worried about this. Do you think that it's an unnecessary worry, though? Well, the, the point is that some colleagues are going and looking at the U.S. historically, and uh, they're looking at like letters pages to newspapers. And again, you know, who knows if that's a valid uh, measure, but basically it seems that Americans are at least as well informed as they ever have been. It actually seems to be near a peak of understanding of both science and what's going on in terms of government. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have to think, I mean, what did people even understand? It just read some stuff from the 19th century. You know, It's like, you know, so we are, it is the information age. And and yes, it makes sense for us to really worry about misinformation. And I think one of the, the main concerns about misinformation is that it's a tool to make people doubt the truth when they see it because they're seeing so much falsehood. And we know that that was actually the USSR specialized in that and Russia's trying to do it again. But at the same time, the truth is that that we are, it is the information age and we do have really quick access. If anything, I think part of the reason that it's harder to govern these days is because it's harder to get people to leave good solutions alone long enough to find out how they work. You know, so we we tend to think in snapshots, but really a lot of things change. They settle in over time. And so it used to be that you could, as a government, just say, okay, this was a big problem. We'll allocate a bunch of resources. Oh, look, there's a bird over there. You know, and we move on to the next topic. Now there's a million people saying, oh, we don't know if you've allocated those resources correctly. And, you know, if, if you're fighting corruption, that's useful. But if you're constantly destabilizing things, then we can't find out what does work. And and did you see, was there any evidence, in your opinion, examples of how technology had really enhanced that process to make it visible, more visible of what the government was doing for individuals and societies? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that we all work on that so much. And there's so many like, you know, public news sources and trying to make sure people are informed. And also a lot of stuff is available online. Again, the UK did this huge thing about, you know, putting everything on the web so people could access and see even just who their counselors were, but you know, how decisions were made. You know, there was something called like, they work for you or something that told you how everybody voted. So all that information is there. And whether people are aware that it's there, 
I don't know. It may be that the right people, the people who are concerned, as long as they can find quickly. I mean, we don't all have time to micromanage every decision made by our governments, right? That's nuts. We don't we don't have time to even understand every aspect. I mean, how many people are working for like your municipal government, you know? Unless you're in a really small village, you probably can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. What we need is the security that there's some people that that we know who the watchdogs are and that they have access to truth. Right. And then we need to, you know, again, pay our taxes and make sure that we can afford that there is adequate redistribution happening so that that the watchdogs can watch and things like that. If we stick with maybe the word redistribution and we look at more of redistribution or a distribution from a country perspective. And we look at maybe how technology intensifies or alleviates economic inequality. Do you think like advancements maybe in the sense of artificial intelligence, if you focus on that in particular, that it has helped or alleviate, as I mentioned, economic inequality and maybe job markets, income distribution, access to opportunities? So I don't want to speculate about an empirical matter. From what I've seen, I unfortunately had a PhD student that was supposed to work on this and he went into some other option. Um, (laughs) But from what I've seen, uh, particularly people are looking at like South America and comparing the different South American countries. And it varies radically from one country to the next. Government really matters. It really, really matters how you do these things. And so how the digital transition is introduced to a country really, really affects whether it actually lowers or increases inequalities. I think, you know, if you don't have literacy, how are you going to have digital literacy? Mm -hmm. In the UK, there was this this ridiculous thing done where all all the welfare stuff was put into, you had to go through computers. And most, you know, some huge proportion of the people that needed welfare needed it because they weren't literate. They weren't competent to be mm-hmm. also to be using computers. So that mm-hmm. this was a way to obviously cut money for the government, but but was obviously disastrous for the people. So I think that you could find that you're increasing inequalities in some subpopulations while you're benefiting the society overall. And I and we've certainly seen that. Um I'm not sure what the I haven't seen the numbers for the last five years, but um you know, that elephant graph that uh, was a Piketty or somebody like that uh, made uh, showing that OECD countries were massively increasing in inequality at the same time that the the vast majority of the world was decreasing in inequality. And so between like 19, was it 1990 and 2015, something like more than half of humanity moved from extreme poverty out of extreme poverty. So 4 billion people you know, were massively better off. That's part of one of the interesting challenges when we look and we say, oh my gosh, there's more migrants as there's ever been. Well, on the one hand, it's like, you know, that's because of, you know, war and, and the climate crisis and whatnot. But on the other hand, it's because these people aren't just starving in place, you know, that they're sufficiently empowered that they can move to somewhere else. And that's in some ways glorious, but obviously it creates new governance and regulatory issues. But then do you see like, I mean, there's a lot of narratives, maybe accessible or mainstream narratives that are talking about the question around AI as a job killer or it's a job enabler. And if we look at maybe the example that you gave earlier about the the global south in particular and about the lack of access to, to like basic tools that they need to become literate. And then we've got other, on another axis, we have well-developed societies that have access to technology, they're they're literate. And we're looking at maybe the empowerment that AI in particular is providing for those. Do you see a possibility of this gap widening 
because of the accessibility to technology and also the necessity possibly for upskilling, the requirement for upskilling at a different level, because we're talking about maybe now a, a lawyer, you know, with generative AI, with the use of generative AI, we're now targeting a different type of worker per se. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think people are particularly targeting workers, but but let's 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 back up. There's an awful lot to unpack in the question. So first of all, the first thing that tends to happen when you bring in new technology and you and you sort of replace people's jobs, that is that you make it easier for for people in that job to be productive, is that you actually wind up increasing employment in that job because each person that gets hired for that job is actually worth more because they're producing more because there's technology, right? So actually that happens. And there's this guy, James Besson, that's done a really great study on this. So what, what happens initially is that and then eventually you're producing enough of whatever it is, depending on the nature of the product. But, you know, like, so he he looked at things, for example, cotton or whatever. So eventually you're producing as much cloth as anyone wants. They, they You know, you can better and better cloth. Okay. It's as much as anyone wants. And at that stage, then you do start getting employment declines because as the automation improves more, there isn't like this greater demand. But that tends to be quite gradual then, right? The complete, the, like the complete people just being thrown out on the street kind of thing hasn't happened that often. Although I think uh, it's been underestimated because quite frequently those people were women. I just recently saw something about like all the telephone operators. Uh, yeah, that, I've heard that example actually. Yeah, that they that that's part of why there's now more women uh, doing uh, college in the U.S than there are men was that suddenly there was nowhere else like a lot of the decent paying jobs just went away and so you had to go for the for the university jobs to get a, a living wage whereas for the men they still had the more skilled trades like automotive uh, and things like that that they could go into and still make a decent wage another thing is that i always am very freaked out about is just the plummeting numbers of uh newspapers like local newspapers but that's not so much because we replaced the journalists as it is because uh, we took all their money away uh, because all the advertising money fled uh, local journalism and went to Google and Facebook. Yeah, and so that in that case, it wasn't like, you know, it was to some extent, okay, there's grammar checkers or whatever built into the word software. But it was, it seemed like a, quite a lot of it was if you have the money, you will find ways to employ and you prefer to employ your current employees because you know them, you trust them, you already, you know, actually, you know, what, what we've seen in Germany, at least, is that the same organizations that do automate also tend to invest in reemployment. But we have very strong labor laws in Germany. Yeah, that's... But also still, they do cut out like a few people towards the bottom. So if you have strong labor laws, you take advantage of the opportunity to say, oh, it's a new job rather than to say, oh, the job has changed. And then uh, and then the people that you want to leave behind you do. But it's not, it's like 20, 20 percent, you know, of plus or minus 5 percent that are that are being sort of left behind by that transition. And the rest of the people wind up with a better paying, more interesting job after the, the new AI automation has been brought in. I think what we do, we do matters. I don't think that there's a, that's what I, why I said before about the different countries. I really, people have this techno determinist belief, but that governance is something we do. It's, it's something. And so whether you get involved matters, you might be able to solve, you know, I work at a governance school now. And one of the, our former students was talking about how just mind blowing it was when you get your first job and you always thought, oh, there's like these giant bureaucracies. What difference can I make? But actually, you're handed this huge amount of responsibility right from the beginning because there's just so much to be done. And so every everyone might be able to alter those outcomes for their locality or their or their country. 
Um, and I just think we have to recognize that. But I also, one of the things, some of these measures are relative. And I don't want to, you know, obviously we would we would prefer that everybody gets the same benefit from advances. But it is important to also acknowledge that as long as people's lives are improving, they tend to be happier, <laughs> you know. And, and so it isn't, even if some people are falling behind, if their lives are improving, then it's not, then it gets complicated about like, well, should you have just not done that at all? It's a very interesting point. Very true as well. And I think it, it is a good um, point to bring our discussion to a near end as well. There is so much to be done. And I think that people can take the opportunity today to to recognise the opportunities that still exist. We've spoken about the impacts of technology and how it has affected and it will affect different areas of uh, society. And I believe that we have given our audience today as well a lot of food for thought and an avenue to, to critically analyse or begin to critically analyse it themselves. So a huge thank you. Joanna, I've uh, really enjoyed the discussion. I have too. An absolutely excellent set of questions. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank all our listeners for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about AIML and search, then go to the Squirrel Academy. Thank you.